on December 15, 1956, in the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum at the Louisiana State Fair in Shreveport, Louisiana, in the middle of the evening's lineup of musical performers, in order to calm the crowd and to disperse the audience, who was anxiously awaiting a possible encore from the most recent performer, and so that the remaining performers for the night could also come out and play, promoter Horace Logan uttered what would become the immortal phrase, all right, all right, he said, Elvis has left the building. And since then, that phrase has become a cultural icon, an idiom for us that is commonly used in various situations to mean essentially, the show's over, folks. That's all there is. There is no more. In order to redirect the people's attention away from something that they hoped would be happening that he knew was not going to be happening. Logan hoped that if the people realized that Elvis Presley was no longer even present in the venue, that reality would begin to set in and they would be able to move on to all of the other performances that were still ahead and that they could look forward to and, and enjoy for the night. Perhaps for us, in a similar but slightly different way, we might be anxiously awaiting waiting around to see if we might experience an encore of what the church was before the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet in order to redirect our attention away from what has gone before and to be able to move on to all the great things that maybe God still has planned ahead, I'd like to suggest for us that it's possible that what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church in this time is that Jesus has left the building. At our annual celebration service last week, if you were able to join us, I shared that I've become more and more convinced in recent weeks that uh, this last year has marked the beginning of God's revealing the new things that He has been preparing for us. And that what we're discovering as we walk through this ministry year of 23 and now into 2024, in the process of God providing a way out of our current financial challenges as a church, as we've explored the expansion of our Little Sprouts preschool, what he's actually revealed is the way forward that he's been preparing for us all along. And so with the expansion of our preschool, we're beginning to recognize that God has not only blessed us with an opportunity to financially support the mission and ministries of Faith Covenant Church in the season ahead, but at the same time, he's opened the door for us to bring the very mission field that he's called us to serve right to our front door and onto this very campus. And what we concluded last week is that this invitation to begin to consider turning our focus outward again, away from ourselves and back onto the mission field that God has called us to serve in this place as we begin to follow Jesus as his disciples on his mission of love to the world and to participate in sharing the good news of the kingdom of God to become a blessing to those around us in our neighborhoods and in our community. This really marks for us a call to return to the true mission of what it means to be followers of Jesus. 
Our position of being in deep need for God's provision for our church has led us to this new possibility for mission and ministry with our neighbors that that we had not fully thought about or comprehended before in the ways that maybe God is beginning to open us up to in this season. The Gospel of Matthew tells us in chapter 9, verses 35 to 37, that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Since last Sunday, it has seemed important to me that we take some time to reflect and discern more what this might mean for us as a church in the season ahead. So I want to change gears a little bit, and rather than jumping back into part two of our Daniel series, which he had planned to do this time of the year, I'd like to postpone that until after Easter. We're still going to come back to it, but to take time leading up to Easter in this season of Lent that begins on Ash Wednesday this week. To look more deeply into this gospel story and the surrounding uh, context of this key passage that God has revealed for us. In verses 35 and 36, we simply see a a summary of all the kinds of miraculous ministry that that Jesus had been doing in the previous chapters. And then it leads to these verses in 37 and 38 where Jesus gives this command for his disciples to ask the Lord of the harvest for workers to be sent out into the harvest field. And in order to more fully understand what this passage might mean for us, we really need to go back to what, understand what the verses 35 and 36 are summarizing and then look ahead to see how Jesus' command to pray for harvest workers plays itself out in the story ahead. And so this larger section in the Gospel of Matthew actually reaches back into chapter 8, and as you look ahead, it stretches forward to the end of chapter 11. So over the next few weeks, as we enter into the season of Lent, we're going to be exploring different portions of chapters 8 through 11 of the Gospel of Matthew, and as we too seek to follow the Lord of the harvest and to wrestle with the implications for us of just what it might mean that Jesus has left the building. So in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, we see that the miraculous healing ministry of Jesus is presenting to us and to the readers of the gospel a demonstration of the authoritative power of the Messiah. He's he's come and, and showing evidence of the presence and the power of the kingdom of heaven at work on earth. These are indicators that that we're supposed to be paying attention to that help us to understand what are the priorities of God's kingdom and how might they be different than the priorities that we might have as human beings or that typical human society might say are the most important things that we should be focusing on. And so in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8, we see Jesus' healing ministry reaching out to those who are marginalized. 
breaking down social barriers and religious barriers that create human separation and, and lead to judgment. Now, we won't take the time to read all of chapter 8 today, but, but what we see there, I want to suggest in this miraculous healing ministry of Jesus, is that in cleansing of the leper, Jesus breaks through the barriers of religious purity in his day. In the healing of the centurion's servant, Jesus is breaking through the ethnic barriers that existed in his society of that day. In healing Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus breaks through the, the barriers of gender equality that existed in their society. And then ultimately in delivering a demon-possessed man, Jesus breaks through the barriers of spiritual authority in God's kingdom on earth. And that's why then in verse 17, quoting Isaiah 53, Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. So where I'd like it for us to focus today for the short time that we have as a part of an introduction to this new series that we're entering into is verses 18 to 22, where we see a brief pause in the action where Jesus takes time with his disciples to, to provide a little bit of background teaching and prepare them for what's coming. And we see here that Matthew introduces for us the question that in the midst of this miraculous kingdom-powered ministry that is happening around him, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus as his disciples? In verse 18, it tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Huh? Another disciple came to him and said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the bed dead bury their own dead. Huh? What is Jesus talking about? I mean, these are probably, if you've grown up in the church or you've studied the Bible, familiar phrases that you've read through as you've read through the Gospels. But, but what do they actually mean? Have you ever dug into either of these phrases that Jesus tells his disciples? You see, the first potential disciple, the passage tells us, is a teacher of the law or a scribe, and he's a schooled and trained professional religious person, which is important in the context of the story, or Matthew would not have mentioned it. See, because in understanding Jesus' response, we have to take into consideration the, the audience to whom he's speaking, and the assumption that we can then make is that as a teacher of the law, this man would have in mind the traditional rabbi-disciple relationship that was common among the people of Israel at that time. Now, in Jesus' day, rabbis enjoyed a, a higher status within Judaic culture. And the better a rabbi's reputation, the more students they would attract to join them and to come and learn from them. And, and then these rabbis would essentially set up schools in local synagogues or other locations around the country. And as a result of becoming one of their apprentices, the disciples would garner a more prestigious place of honor within the larger religious establishment. In contrast, Jesus uses what was most likely a familiar metaphor during his day, saying, foxes have dens, 
Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, scholars suggest that rather than being an indication that Jesus was essentially homeless, scholars actually say that this is intended more to be an indication of the type of disciple-master relationship that Jesus was interested for those who would follow him. So Jesus is saying, essentially, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, you have to understand that it's not going to be like the traditional way in which we are familiar. It's not going to be the way we've always done it, and it's not going to be something that you might readily be comfortable with. You see, rather than being a pathway to upward religious mobility in society and to greater and greater prestige in your personal life, following me means you'll be required to let go of that past, to become humble in your approach to life and ministry, and to recognize that the focus is not going to be on building a bigger and better religious institution, but going out into the world to meet the needs of the hurting and the broken, and to see the demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God that is broken into the world for that very purpose. There's not going to be a house. There will be no spiritual home. There's not going to be a synagogue or a religious building where we're going to go and we're going to sit and we're going to get comfortable and we're going to wait for people to come to us so that we can minister to them in in that place. No, I'm going to be sending you out. You're going to be following me into the highways, into the byways to see the need and to see where people are living their lives and to love them and bless them and bring the good news message to where they're at. And so Jesus is really telling this professional religious person that his ministry will not result in an institutional establishment designed to gather people into it with comfortable benefits and cultural popularity, and that this will be the case for those who choose to follow him as their master as well. Is there any application for us (laughs) in our experience of following Jesus today? What would it mean for us to be like the Son of Man and have no place to lay our religious heads? The unspoken question that Jesus asked the teacher of the law is, are you still willing to follow me knowing this to be true? Before we can find out the man's response, though, we see another disciple step up and asked to be excused from following Jesus for a period of time so that he can go and bury his father. Well, who who wouldn't want to let somebody go and bury their father? I mean, that seems like a very Christian thing to do, doesn't it? And so Jesus' response isn't just surprising, it's, it's almost shocking. Jesus' response is, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Ouch. Now, as I was doing some quick research, most commentaries suggest that what Jesus probably meant here is leave the spiritual dead to bury the physical dead, right? Those who are following him are the ones who are receiving new life, and and they were spiritually alive, and don't worry about going back to, to bury the dead people who are spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. But 
it kind of doesn't fit with the context or really makes sense that Jesus would say that. You know, Jesus didn't say he came to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And we know that one of the core laws of the Jewish culture was to honor your father and your mother. And that command played itself out in the burial practices of the Jewish people. And so for the, the, the responsibility of a son to be able to bury his father, especially if he was an eldest son, would have been a, a very high priority. And it wouldn't make sense that Jesus would tell him to forgo that honoring of his father. So maybe there's something else going on here. Jesus isn't telling this would-be disciple to not care for his dead father Rather, hearing, rather than hearing it literally, this is part of our challenge, we need to understand, other scholars suggest, that this phrase is really more of an idiom. Right? It's like a, a wisdom saying. We, we know that one idiom that we've heard already today is, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> and that, that the, literally, Elvis leaving the building was the start of that, but now it means something else. Right? And we can use that phrase... To, to import meaning into different experiences. Or you, you might know the phrase, uh, you're in some hot water now. Probably doesn't mean you're standing in a bathtub with boiling water, right? Or his boss gave him the ax. Hmm, probably not a horror movie. <laughs> it's time to face the music. Doesn't mean turning up your stereo full blast and standing from the speakers and getting whiplash from banging your head. You've hit the nail on the head. Yes, carpenters are very important and a skill at swinging a hammer is also important. But if you've hit the nail on the head, it actually means something quite different. You can't take idioms literally or you completely misunderstand the point of why the idiom is being used. And so in the first century, when a person died, they normally were taken and buried immediately in the, the family sepulcher, which was like a, a cave that was dug out of the rock. And, and they would put the, the corpse into this tomb or the, this burial chamber, and they would allow, be allowed to, to sit there and, and decompose. There was a seven-day mourning period where the whole family would pause and they would mourn. And then there was another 30-day kind of less intense uh, mourning period. But ultimately, the mourning period for people in Israel lasted a full year because that's how long it took for the, the body to fully decompose. And then at the end of the year, it was the responsibility of the family to go back into the sepulcher, take the bones and put them into what they call an ossuary or like a chest, and to do the final burial of the ancestral bones. So if we truly understand the burial practices of ancient Israel as opposed to the way we do it, where it's, you know, no muss, no fuss, drop them in the ground and we're done, Right? It's possible that what Jesus is saying here is that your focus on going back on the ministry and call of my, uh, uh, that I have on your life to take care of something that's already dead and gone out of some artificial religious duty that you have to the past doesn't lead you to the new life that I have for you in the future. 
You see, the Jerusalem Talmud also states that when the flesh had wasted away, the bones were collected and placed into these chests. And on that day, the son mourned, but the the following day he was glad because his forebears had now rested from judgment. And a part of that, there's a theological understanding going on here as well, if we dig a little deeper, where according to these rabbinic sources, this decomposition process of the flesh actually was a part of how their sins were atoned for even after death. So it was almost kind of like a a year-long purgatory where where allowing those, uh, those bones to decompose or the flesh to decompose was a part of paying penance for the sins and and bringing purity to those people who have passed away. And so part of what Jesus might be confronting here as well is this contrary theology to the gospel message that he was bringing, where Jesus is rather saying that, that faith in him is the only thing that is redemptive of our sins, that, that decomposing in a grave is not what saves us. You're not going to atone for your sin by allowing your flesh to rot or any other thing that you can do in your own strength to try and save yourself. So what's really happening here is that this this would-be disciple is using a, a religious excuse that's based on bad theology to try and avoid the call of Jesus while still wanting to Jesus to bless his life. Now that doesn't have any application for us either, does it? So essentially what Jesus is likely saying here is that, hey, you've already honored your father. You've already buried him and put him in the sepulcher. Now instead of waiting around up to a a year for the flesh to rot so you can put the bones in a box and then come back and follow me, let that go. That, That way of doing life has no value or meaning anymore because the new life that God is providing has already arrived. Come, follow me and be a part of the the emerging kingdom of God, telling people about the, the true means of atonement and the true way to find salvation, which is through Christ alone. God wants us to care for the needs of our families. I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't love our families and we shouldn't honor them. That's a part of God's call of what it means to be a part of the human family. But Jesus was also very clear that we need to have our priorities straight and nothing that that we do is in terms of our commitment to those who are a part of our family should supersede our commitment to him as the Lord of our lives and the ministry that he's called us to do. What, What does it mean for us then about prioritizing the need to care for our spiritual family here at the church? Is it, is it at all possible that when we take our religious theology and we say, gosh, gosh, we know, Jesus, that you've called us to go out into the world and to heal the sick and to cast out the, the demon, or to heal the demon-possessed and cast out demons and to, to, to carry this ministry forward and to see new people come to faith, but, but gosh, God, we've got to take care of the people who are already here. Does it have to be an either-or? If we say God is calling us to go into the world and to be sent out to love our neighbor and to bring this good news message to the world around us, does it mean that we sacrifice God's blessing for those who are already here? 
Or does it actually work the opposite, that when we align ourselves with God's mission and we follow Jesus as his disciples, that's when God actually pours out his blessing on his people so that they can be a blessing to others. Isn't that really the biblical model that we see from the beginning of our faith with, of faith with Abraham all the way through Christ and his disciples? Is it possible that Jesus might be inviting us to hear in these words of concern over these would-be disciples to not let our concern for for getting what we need or having our needs met or wondering if we're going to have to sacrifice our comfort or, or, or what we hope to get out of church get us off track from hearing the call and responding to Jesus to follow him into the world as his disciples. Because Jesus is saying that If you look at me, if you follow my story, if you look at my life, you'll see all the clues you need to the the kind of lifestyle and the ministry that I'm calling you to. And it isn't to sit in a religious school and wait for people to come to you so that you can teach them about how to live the life that you're not living. It's to go out into the world and to live the life that God has called us to and invite people to join you and teach them how to do it along the way. That was Jesus' model. Jesus is out. He's among the people. He's participating in their day-to-day lives, healing the broken, comforting the needy. He stays in the homes of his friends and his relatives and his disciples. Throughout his ministry, Jesus tells these two would-be disciples who are following him that they don't understand what they're asking. And if they knew what they were really asking, they might have second thoughts about what they're saying they want to do. And so maybe the question for us as we begin to sense that God might be opening a new call for us as a church to to look outward and to go on mission with Jesus in a new way is that we have to take an honest stock of our own desire and willingness to follow Jesus. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus as the Son of Man who has no place to lay his head? Are we willing to let go of the past and to to not trust in our tradition and to not believe that if we sacrifice something that we have now that we're going to lose God's blessing or we're not going to get enough to make ourselves happy, but actually find that by giving things away, we actually experience greater generosity and blessing from God? What does it really look like for us to follow him and let the dead bury their own dead? What is it that we need to let go of from the past that is holding us back and preventing us from not only hearing the call of Jesus on our lives and our church, but actually responding and following him into the world to make a difference? These are questions that we're going to be exploring and pondering in the weeks ahead as we look through the middle part of Matthew's gospel And I just want to close with the final question. What might it mean for us if we begin to realize that in our post-COVID, post-modern, post-church culture, the reality is that Jesus has left the building? Let's pray. God, we know that In so many ways throughout the story of Jesus and his disciples, there are these challenge points. These points that are 
sometimes shocking, hard to understand, difficult to accept. And that we know that in many points, people turned away from following Jesus because it was more than they thought that they had signed up for. God, I pray in this season that for those of us who are here at Faith Covenant Church, that as you open our hearts and our minds to the ways that you're calling us forward as a faith community, that not only will you challenge us, but you'll give us the courage to respond in ways that, that it isn't too much for us to handle and it isn't more than we bargained for. But when we said yes to Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, we meant it. And that when Jesus taught his disciples that in order to find our life, we have to lose it and that to give up our life was to discover new life in Christ. We understood what we were signing up for, and we said, yes, 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 Jesus, that's what we're willing to do with you and for you. And God, as we go through this season, I just pray that you give us the encouragement to understand that in our individualistic approach to faith and our relationship with you, that you have never called any one of us to do this alone, but that's why you've given us the community of brothers and sisters called the church so that we can lean into one another and we can serve side by side. And as you send us into the world, it's never something we do in isolation or alone, but it's always a part of the mission of your body, whom you have sent into all the world to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.